This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the first and only book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected names in contemporary photography to select a first edition monograph that's a must-have for every collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist along with a note card and a print from the guest curator. Free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Past curators have included Alex Soth, Mark Steinmetz, Melissa Catanese, Ron Jude, and many other photographers you've heard on this podcast. I gotta say, Charcoal Book Club really is the best and most exciting way to stay up to date with the most essential work in contemporary photography. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. In the past two years, Mary Fry put out two new books, Reading Raymond Carver and Real Life Dramas. The first is made up of black and white work, and the other, all color. Both bodies of work are in and around 35 years old, and these were Fry's first major publications of them. It wasn't exactly as if she was unknown until now, though. In fact, almost the inverse. She's been a cult hero in photography circles for years, and a beloved teacher at Hartford's graduate program, where she taught until 2015. Fry earned her MFA at Yale and is a Guggenheim Fellow. Her work has been shown at the Art Institute of Chicago, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, and at MoMA, just to name a few. It was actually in the catalog for a seminal show at MoMA called The Pleasures and Terrors of Domestic Comfort, where I first discovered her work. I remember her pictures had everything that I was interested in photography in them. They were banal yet mysterious moments out of the everyday. They were graphically compelling, such great color. And they had a strange open-ended quality to them, especially in their unusual pairings with curious texts that accompanied them. Whenever I looked at those photos, they always made me want to see more and always made me want to take my own pictures. I met her at her home in a suburb of western Massachusetts on a crisp fall morning a few months ago. It's easier to talk about other people's pictures than it is to talk about your own. That's why I'm feeling a little uneasy here today. (laughs) Why do you think that is? Well, because I don't want to explain away my pictures. And uh, I could probably do that quite easily. So I'd rather hear what other people think about them. Because you examine your work so much. I examine it, and I had an impulse of why I did it. Um, And when it surprises me, and that's usually a keeper when there's something else there. Yeah. I want to ask you where your interest in the domestic came from as your key subject matter. Well, when I was in graduate school um, back in 1978. Where'd you go? I went to Yale, Mm -hmm. um, and I was sort of searching around for something to photograph. Um, I was also teaching myself how to use a view camera. Mm -hmm. So I would set it up in places and then play around with it and try different lighting and and so forth. And I was always, why did I, well, I was always interested in the snapshot as sort of a vessel of memory. And I was sort of curious about why, when I have, look at old snapshots, do I actually remember that event? Or is it the snapshot that informs and shapes my opinion of that event, my memory of that event? And so sort of with that in the back of my mind, I started to photograph just sort of everyday snapshotty kinds of moments with my view camera. Mm -hmm. 
And in the fall of my second year at Yale, I went home to visit my family on Thanksgiving. And I set up the camera. My mother was cooking. I set up the camera in the um, kitchen. And she took out her pie. And she put it up, raised it, and it replaced the smile. And I had an aha moment. Mm -hmm. I knew that's what I wanted to do. You know, that kind of all it was a confluence of all those sort of sort of ideas that I had about my interest in the snapshot, uh, my interest in people, um, and and trying to sort of sort of figure out what a subject could be. This could be a subject, and from that moment on, I started to try and look for and make photographs of the simplest, most banal things I could think of, the most boring things I can think of, and see if I can make them look interesting. The way my mother taking out that pie suddenly became interesting because it replaced her smile. Mm -hmm. And that was that was the bigger, but that was maybe one of the punctums, as mm -hmm. we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. But then when I examined the picture, it was all those other wonderful little things. There was, the water was running in the, in the um, sink and just sort of the little, the way the house was decorated, the way her apron had sort of smudges on it. I was sort of fascinated with all that stuff. And it all, for me, had a kind of a physical kind of meaning, which um, I love. Mm. It seems ironic that you started exploring the, the snapshot with a view camera. Why not? <laughs> there are no rules. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I first started as a photographer, I had a Leica. And then when I was in graduate school, I said to myself, well, I need to learn how to use the view camera. Why? I don't know. I was a photographer. And if I was going to teach, I better know, know my tools yeah. and understand them all. So um, that's when I started to pick up the view camera. And it kind of like my aesthetic kind of developed along with my sort of learning the tools as well. Mm -hmm. So that when I would set up my camera, um, you would look at everything else, the world upside down and in reverse. So it started to be about like organizing space, which I hadn't thought about before when I was using a 35 millimeter camera. So the 35, I mean the, um, excuse me, the four by five paused me, made me pause and think about the structure of a picture. Right. Um, the fact that the, le the negative was so large and it described things in beautiful accuracy, mm -hmm. it's something else. And I, um, back then I was trying different ways to light a scene because it's hard to light four by five. Um, and I didn't like flash. Flash just kind of flattened everything. And I found these flash bulbs, you know, those old fashioned flash bulbs that would sort of explode, kind of like little versions of what Ouija used. Right, yeah, yeah. That's what um, so I bought as many as I could find. Uh -huh. And really, I just had a, a tiny little compact flash that I would put on top of my, um, of the view camera and point it to the ceiling. But because the flash bulbs, they had this, they explode, they peak, and they die, they have a really long time that the, it lights the scene. So it must do something to the exposure of the film. So the light kind of envelops. Hmm. And I just love the way that looked. It looked almost like theater lighting. Hmm. And um, so the combination of the large camera, the the, all the hyper real kind of quality and then the, the quality of the light 
um, kind of all fell together for me. I, and when I started to create what I called were like these tableau vivants mm-hmm. of middle class everyday life. Uh-huh. In fact, I'm, I created a laundry list of things that I wanted to photograph. You know, oh, yeah? People eating, people dressing, people this, this, this. And um, I, I try to make an interesting picture of all of these things. I mm-hmm. think the one failure I have is um, could never find a, make a good picture of someone shaving their legs. Hmm. I really wanted to do that. And mm-hmm. I have a bunch of leg shave, shaving pictures, <laughs> but none of them really worked. So I would photograph my family and friends because they were available. And uh, then I would go out on the street with my camera and I'd find someone that looked interesting, took their picture. I said, I'm, I want to photograph people doing everyday things. And back in the seven, you know, the late 70s and the early 80s, people were sort of like looked at me strangely because I had this large camera, but they were willing to sort of pose for me because they mm-hmm. were fascinated with it, I think. Um, so um, this was a way for me to get into their houses. So I would take pictures, I would make prints for them, and then I'd knock on their door and show up and get into their houses and photograph them. And after a while, I developed what I like to call a cast of characters because they were the same people I would photograph over and over. They were they were great actors for me. They really had um, an ability to do what I wanted them to do or to feel comfortable in front of the camera and ignore me and sort of go about their business. And then I'd say, oh, hold it. I want to do this. And then I make the pictures. So. How, how do you think you were able to do that? How do you work with people? Um, well, I'm a pretty easygoing person, right? <laughs> <laughs> pretty non-threatening person, little woman. <laughs> um, so... And I was just really truthful to them. I wasn't, I just said, I want, I'm interested in, like, I can remember one woman, um, I said, I re- she was blonde and all her kids are blonde. And I walked up to her and I said, I really love your blondness. I love the blonde hair. Can I take a picture? I mean, I, that's really what drew me to it. And so I think if I, my honesty maybe came through, that's all I can think of. I was very non-threatening, so... I'm curious about the problematic nature of photographing family and friends. When you're very close with people and those people are your subject matter, it feels like maybe a bit of a a more difficult territory to navigate. Yeah, but the thing is, I really was able to step back and consider everybody like, as I said, a part of my cast of characters. Mm -hmm. So they really weren't, it wasn't about them. The pictures weren't about them. They were characters. They were actors. And it was sort of my ideas. And people were willing to sort of do this. I gave people all of the pictures I photographed. I would cut up my contact sheets and hand them the whole wad. Mm-hmm. And I'd make big prints if they wanted big prints. And they were just thrilled with them. They didn't seem at all put off by the fact that this isn't something, a way they didn't want to be depicted. Mm-hmm. Um in fact, my parents, I photographed them so much. My father, here she goes again. You know, what do you want us to do? You want to show my undershirt again? You know, what do you want me to do? I mean, they were, so, they were sort of willing to, to be part of that. And I'm, for that, I'm so grateful for all of the, of the people I photographed. Mm-hmm. Um, after I published um, Reading Raymond Carver, I um, went to try to find some of the people I had photographed 35 years prior. And I found them. I found a bunch of them um, that I had no relationship with. I mean, there's people in that book, obviously my relatives and some friends. But um, And I, I went back and I gave them books, mm-hmm. and they were so excited. Yeah. Um, 
And when they look at the pictures, they don't think about the, it as themselves. They kind of can step back from it too. It was, it was kind of an odd kind of thing. Um, and they would call me up and say, hey, I'm doing thus and so. We're having a party. Would you like to come over? Mm-hmm. And again, I could be a fly on the wall. And nobody, I didn't, people didn't pose for me or anything like that. But I would pull people out and have them do things for me. And they were willing. That's mm-hmm. why I said I have sort of a, I, I winnowed down all the people I photographed to a group that I could work with. And they, mm-hmm. and then you just, and you stuck to that group. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Yeah. So a lot of the people in my first book are also in my second book, the color pictures. Right. Because I continued to photograph them. Yeah. And I'm continuing to photograph them now as I found them again, 35 years later, which really? is really fun. Yeah. Huh. I want to ask you about Raymond Carver. I was wondering what you would describe as the quality in his writing that is so incredible. First of all, he just, his subject matter. I mm-hmm. just love the fact that they're just sort of ordinary folks going about their ordinary lives and then something happens. Mm-hmm. His writing to me is very visual. I mean, I can sort of see see it in my mind's eye and as i said before there's just something that turns on a dime that's a a simple kind of gesture a moment whatever it is that um just i just loved um there was a drama about the everyday in his uh, writing that Mm -hmm. uh, intrigued me i was reminded of um something that larry sultan said about his writing, which was how you really believed his stories. You you believed them and you felt so uh, present in them, even though you knew they were, they were fiction, mm-hmm. they were all written, but somehow you still believed them. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that he thought that was one of the ultimate qualities of photography. Well, that is the ultimate quality. Of, it's believable. Yeah. It's believable. It's, it has its own fiction. Yeah. Is that... Is that, do you think that is the, um, the medium strength over others? For me, it is. Yeah. That's what interested me in photographs, Mm -hmm. ultimately, that they could be, um, images of something, but it's about something else. Right. So. Yeah. But the believability in them is what makes them so powerful. Oh, incredible. The truth of the picture, you know, the fiction of the picture is the truth of the picture. Right. So, um, that's what's kept me photographing for 30 odd years. I'm not a big person, darkroom person. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't fall in love with photography. And some people fall in love with photography because they love the magic of the darkroom. Yeah. For me, it was the picture was so interesting. If I could hire someone to print my pictures yeah. in a good way, I'd be happy. Yeah. You know? But um, it really is that sort of examining the picture, all the four edges of it and all the things it can bring into play. You know, the description of things, the gesture, the moments, something, something is a little off and all of a sudden the picture creates is a new meaning is created. Mm-hmm. I just love it. How do you feel when you're photographing? It's a, it's a chore. It's a chore? Yeah. It's hard? Oh yeah. It's really hard. How so? Um, well, dealing with people, you have to be nice all the time (laughs) and, and try to keep up your end of the conversation and try to get them to do what you want to do, even though they might be 
sort of generous about it. They still don't get it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I often will go back several times before I get a picture that I like mm-hmm. or want to use. Oh, you'll, you know, you'll try and redo this like similar, like the, yeah. the, the same scene over and yeah, or you know, just go back and, mm-hmm. and find something, or I'll dis- discover something new, which is you know always a pleasure, mm-hmm. something I didn't anticipate before. Is that always one of the big pleasures for you? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Is that it? Like kind of discovering something that you would never absolutely. Have imagined? Yeah. yeah. And um, or there's a moment when you're photographing when you know it all comes together, and mm-hmm. you know that picture's a good one. Mm-hmm. You know, now I just use a digital camera. I don't even bother with film anymore. How come? That's, I can't stand scanning. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's such a chore, all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's the camera of today. So I'm using it, but I'm using it like a view camera. Mm-hmm. I'll go out for several hours and come back with 20 shots. Mm-hmm. So. Do I you s- think that's because you've just developed that kind of control? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're able to use a camera that way. Yeah. So you, ha- uh, you, you haven't succumbed to the, you know, to the. No. Digital. No. Yeah. I don't. I mean, why bother using Lightroom? I could like have my projects in little folders that yeah. of 20 pictures each <laughs> and I could find them, you know, it's sort of like having my negatives. I'm just curious which, uh, which digital camera you use. Well, I started out with a um, Canon and mm-hmm. then I switched to Nikon because I like that four by five aspect ratio. Right. But that camera is so friggin' large that... <laughs> And carrying it around was a nuisance. So now I have a little Sony. The Sony, the A7. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And although the aspect ratio is not to my liking, I'm getting used to it. It's kind of I've gone back to Leica. My, my first camera was a Leica. Yeah. So I've sort of gone back to that. Um, uh-huh. So I'm learning to live with it. Your moments are so precise and there's so much going on in each moment. It seemed like uh, the, the, you were shooting very minimally, like when you were using that, that the medium format, like mm-hmm. doing the color pictures. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Maybe, maybe three or four shots uh-huh. of the scene because it was still, it was a slow process, even though it was handheld. Mm-hmm. I mean, what that allowed me to do was be off tripod basically yeah. and have a few more, be a little bit more sort of fluid in terms of how I frame things. Mm-hmm. But I always, because I was a, um, a Mamiya, mm-hmm. so you look through kind of a little window you saw, and you didn't even, well, you didn't really look through the lens. Mm-hmm. So um, you said I organized the space. I yeah. just organized it, not upside down, right side up. <laughs> I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Mary Fry. To see more of her work, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Whenever I would go into the homes of people that I was photographing, their TV would always be on, um, and 
I was sort of realizing how much, you know, culture, uh, popular culture sort of imbues and affects, affected their lives. So I was sort of curious about that. So I started to read um, those sort of magazine, those um, not magazines, um, the pulp fiction mm-hmm. that you could buy in, in um, grocery stores and a lot of romance novels and things like that, just to sort of get a flavor for what people were sort of feeling and thinking. And then I decided, well, well let's try seeing what, how images and text could work together. And it's just that second project of mine, which I called real life dramas back then evolved mm-hmm. using, I created these sort of sort of pithy little um, snippets of, of text that were reminiscent of that kind of pop culture. And, and I used them not as captions, sort of as captions, but they really weren't captions because they didn't explain anything. So I was sort of inter- interested in that sort of interface of text and image and how meanings can shift and slip and change depending upon what was put there. Right. So how are you thinking about the plays between the two? Like what, what kind of uh, association did you, did you want to make? Well, I didn't want to make any very specific. So sometimes it would be just a word that would have meaning um, that would sort of reflect within the picture. Or sometimes it would be the meaning of the phrase would reflect an idea about the picture. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain. Did you want them, did you want both the pictures and the words to have a similar tonal quality? Um, I guess so. Because the, well... The pictures were sort of set up and posed of these banal situations that looked important. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they were sort of dramatic, and I put that in quotes. (laughs) And then the um, text itself was sort of overblown and dramatic. And so pairing them together, they was, it was, I guess it was sort of the idea of um, they were captions, but they were, but they really didn't explain anything. And so, what do you really know about a picture? Do you know about it because of the text? Not really. You know something, and it's it's usually nothing to do with the picture, or it's minimally to do with the picture. So pictures themselves are so much more interesting than words, I think. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> so much more fluid and able to be have so multiple meanings. So mm-hmm. Words are so grounded. You don't think words have the ability to be as open ended as pictures? Um, well. They do, yeah. but pictures, I think, have a lot more because a lot more people can sort of sort of bring things to the table when they look at a picture. Can project onto them. Yeah, or yeah. just bring their baggage to it and understand. That's why people, when they look at the pictures of themselves, um, like we were talking about earlier, they, um, they don't think twice about it because they have another idea about that what picture what that picture means, mm-hmm. and it always amazed me that they would see something totally different than what I was seeing, and thinking about and looking at in the pictures. It's so interesting how that happens, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's. I love it. So in the new book of color work, it's called Real Life Dramas. The original pictures they were shown. I first discovered those pictures in a book called The Pleasures and Terrors of Domestic. Comfort. Of Domestic Comfort, mm-hmm. which is a MoMA show mm-hmm. in the late 80s. It was mm-hmm. put on by Peter Galassi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, there's there's a bunch of them in there. Mm-hmm. And the pictures are shown with, with your typewritten text. Right. How come you decided to change the format? 
You mean for the book? For the book, yeah. I didn't want the book to be that project. I wanted it to be a different project. I wanted there to be some sort of narrative arc Mm -hmm. to the book. Just stepping back when we talk about, because both of my books were projects before they were books, Mm -hmm. and I never thought about them as being books, ever, ever, ever. Hmm. Uh, I mean, back then, if you got a book published, you were lucky. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't like today where there's a plethora of books. Um, So you made pictures, you made them around an idea, you had an artist statement. Um, depending upon where you hung them, the configuration on the wall, that would determine your narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, what pictures went next to each other and how they sort of informed each other and so forth. So um, with the books, I really wanted to have them be themselves, but also to honor the original intention of the pictures. So somehow have both. And I played around with real life dramas by putting text with image, with some images. Um, and it just felt too limiting. Again, it was sort of like that idea is come and gone. That's old news to me now. <laughs> so um, I went back and looked at all the work I had done at that time. And there was a lot of pictures I couldn't use because I didn't have text for them. Mm-hmm. Suddenly I could use these pictures. I was so excited. So I started <laughs> to make I, several hundred pictures that were I felt were strong. And... Um, trying to figure out how to include text. I didn't want to like get rid of it per se because it was still part of the original intention. I wanted to sort of make, acknowledge it, I guess. Mm-hmm. So in the end, we came up with this idea, my publisher and I, of just having about three or four phrases throughout the book on their own page. And that worked because they can, they imply ideas from those pictures that one has just seen or one sort of moves beyond um, after the text and looks at the pictures. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it doesn't really matter about the text, does it? Because you just look at the pictures. When I saw those originally, I always th- thought, I mean, despite the, the picture's strengths, the text was always, in, it, it always seemed like an interesting element to me. It did, and, but and, I, some, and, and, and also unusual for the time. Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That I wanted to try something nobody, I felt, was doing, that too many people were doing anyway. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I, I worked it through. So that... Put it in a box. It's done. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested anymore. Yeah. But the book was really exciting to me because I could now just allow the pictures to be themselves to sort of suggest all the possibilities that pictures are good at doing yeah. without limiting them or directing my viewer or anything like that or making reference to something else. Yeah. So, so how did these books come to be? Because... Um, Reading Raymond Carver came out last year, mm-hmm. and Real Life Dramas just came out. Mm-hmm. This work is about, the earliest work is what, it's 40 years old? 35 years old is the earliest, and I'm working backwards, so by the time I'm 100, maybe I'll <laughs> get to my, my recent work. <laughs> so the, the, both books were published by Pepperoni Books, mm-hmm. the imprint that was run by Hans Wanderer. Hannes Wanderer. Hannes Wanderer, mm-hmm. excuse me who just unfortunately passed away at, at 60 years old. Mm-hmm. Such a beloved guy. I mean, upon his death, it's just, it's just incredible to see all the love mm-hmm. um, that people had for him and appreciation for his work. What was it like working with him? It was wonderful. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting because we were, you know, we were separated by an ocean and mm-hmm. part of Europe. We were far apart from each other. 
but we would, um, well, first of all, he really appreciated and loved my work and, and got it mm-hmm. and was passionate about it. Sometimes more passionate than I was because uh-huh. this was old work. It's yeah. like, but he helped me sort of see that it really had would have residence today. Today, so I'm really so internally grateful for that. But anyway, what we would do is I would for both books I would put I would I scanned a number of images, several hundred, and I would send him the scans. And these are the body, and then I would put together my initial. Um, edit and then he would look at it and he'd look at the pictures and he'd add he'd play it around and we'd go back and forth it was like call and response and every once in a while there would be an email from him with some writing but basically it was basically the pictures and the text and the and in pdfs back and forth to each other how many uh, incarnations did it go through well the first book was i think 17 mm. And then the second book was a little less, maybe about 12 or so. You guys got the hang of working we together. We got the hang of working together. Mm-hmm. So, and sometimes he was all, he loved Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. And sometimes his emails were just like stanzas from Bob Dylan songs. I wasn't quite <laughs> sure what he was trying to tell me. But <laughs> <laughs> he was a character. He, he was so passionate about photographers, photography, photo books. So yeah, it's it's a real loss. And um, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, I had the book launch for Real Life Dramas in Cologne on September eighth, and I spoke to him right before the opening of the show it was a show mm. and a book launch. And um, he said he wasn't feeling well; he couldn't come. And then that was it. He, he had passed away probably the next day of a heart attack. Um, but I feel sort of honored that mine was the last book he'd published. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's bittersweet. Anything I feel about this book, you know, all the success I feel is really just bittersweet. Mm-hmm. So. You just talked about how you never thought about the narrative arc or the pictures right. in terms of the book context before. Tell me how you were thinking about that narrative arc mm-hmm. with these books. Okay. Well, for example, with the... Um, reading Raymond Carver, that work was really kind of, as I said, inspired by family snapshots and my memory of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, the black and white pictures kind for me resembled the way um, they were, t- as I said, tableau vivants that kind of looked like pictures you would see in Life and Look magazine in the 50s and 60s, which when I grew up, I was looking at that. Mm-hmm. So um, when I went back to this work, I didn't, I wanted to sort of honor the original intentions, but I wanted to, you know, see what it could mean now. And I realized it's sort of like looking back at a life lived is how I sort of thought about it. And so that's how I kind of structured the, the pictures. Think about choices you make in life mm-hmm. and then the consequences that occur. And then that's why I plucked that, um, small poem from Raymond Carver's and I put it in there mm-hmm. and that one phrase from one of his stories. Hmm. What does that mean formally in terms of the actual sequencing of the pictures? Well, I guess it's just which pictures I include and how that they're sequenced is, 
you know, visually how they're sequenced, you know, like, like you'd sequence anything to make one flow to the other. But I wanted pictures in there that talked about being young, Mm -hmm. infant, old, and in between, Mm -hmm. and sort of coming to terms with the fact that this is all I've done in my life. This is my life. Mm -hmm. Is this it? (laughs) (laughs) But then it is it. And would you do it again? Raymond Carver says, yes, Mm -hmm. I'd do it again. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I think we're all glad you did. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You did it at least once. (laughs) I did it once, right. (laughs) So the color pictures, it's a little bit different in terms of how I thought about them because they were like mini dramas. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of these little moments in life that are really inconsequential, but when frozen like that and looked at that, they could be pretty, <laughs> they, they could have other kinds of meanings. For example, the picture, and I, it's, it's probably not good to talk about a picture when we're talking in words. It's okay, we can. But um, yeah. the picture of the woman holding out her hand to the baby who's coming towards her, you just see the hands and the baby's crying. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's a, a to my mind, like a uncomfortable picture. Um, with the adults in the background kind of hanging around, kind of looking sort of not not paying attention. This baby is really sort of in t- almost in terror. And the hands don't look inviting. They look a little kind of creepy the way they come in. So, I mean, that's something that you would, in the, in the course of a day or whatever, in the course of a moment, you wouldn't notice anything. But because it's now a photograph, it suddenly has this, other kind of other meanings that are just really interesting mm-hmm. could be really interesting mm-hmm. and dramatic and unnerving and whatever does that make sense to you yeah it makes sense to me okay yeah i'm, I'm just thinking about this idea of narrative and, and um book form and connecting pictures to each other even though it kind of existed you know you can go back to american photographs to walker evans mm. and you know, that was the kind of maybe the first model of the literary kind of example mm-hmm. of doing that. But is that more of like a contemporary concern? Like, was that such a big thing when you were when you were in school, when you were first coming up? Like, like that idea of narrative structure with pictures? Because today it seems like, like um, you know, you were teaching at Hartford and I know, I mean, there's, the, the book is a... The photo book is the centerpiece of the, photo book the is grad the, program. Yeah. Right. Well, it depends upon which pictures you looked at. And if you looked at Robert Frank, mm-hmm. or if you looked at Walker Evans, you paid attention to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, if you looked at Gary Winogrand, not so much. Not so much. Yeah. Lee Freelander, not so much. Right. Even So, um, I mean, Walker was ahead of his time in terms of thinking about the book and the structure of it and the meaning of it. Mm-hmm. And he even had chapters, didn't he? Uh, yeah, chapters are like, two sections. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're right. Yeah. Like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like... So, but nowadays, it's it's so interesting. Yeah. The photo book and all the, the ways that people approach it. Um, I mean, I don't think I can make a photo book like young people do today um, where they have pictures that have no meaning at all. I can't, <laughs> I can't make a picture that has no meaning. What do you mean by that? Well, just like a... A random thing, like right. something that's just about the color red, right. let's say. I need a whole sort of story. Yeah. I need content. 
Um, but then when they when they're put together with other images, they suddenly creates new meaning. I I think that's a wonderful thing, and I I'm maybe going to try that at some mm. point. You say it in in a in more of a positive way. Is that also? Oh, it's wonderful. You think it, okay? You, yeah. you find it wonderful. Oh yeah. You don't do. find it. You don't find it to be problematic no, at all. No, or not you, at don't, all. you don't get annoyed no. by it. Oh, not at all. Uh huh. No, no. You you see it like as a way of being. Uh, as like a, a fresh or an interesting way of working. Fresh, interesting, and something I maybe will aspire to. Okay, because my interpretation of what what you said is kind of like that the pictures themselves have to be, like, that's like the first thing. Like the, the pictures themselves need to be really compelling. Yeah. Yeah. For my own work. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. That's the way I operate because I'm trained that way. I want to ask you uh, something on a similar note to your pictures. You were just describing before how you, you know, you used to make shopping lists of things, of scenes that you mm -hmm. wanted to photograph. Very kind of banal, mm -hmm. um, everyday scenes. There's an intimacy to all your photos. And I'm curious how you think about making intimate pictures without being too sentimental. Hmm. That is danger, isn't it? sentimentality yes yeah and a lot of my pictures are sentimental and then i reject them why is sentimentality so dangerous because why well it's not dangerous but um it just is uninteresting mm -hmm. um i always felt when i went out to take pictures i had to get into people's homes i had to invade their intimate space uh -huh. in order for it to be interesting yeah and when you're in that space they suddenly feel comfortable and will do things in intimate ways they wouldn't do out in the world. And even when you're out in the world, like I would, I'd photograph a lot of beaches or parks where people hung out. Um, once they set up their towel or their picnic table, they kind of then were free to sort of operate within that space. Once they set up their, their sort of parameters, mm -hmm. um, they would do things that, frankly, they probably wouldn't do if they were like, in the middle of the street. So, um, what was your original question again? <laughs> well, how, no, how do you make intimate pictures without being, without too much sentimentality? Yeah. Maybe it's just because I feel like that's a really hard thing to do and you just do it so well. So I wonder if you ever think about it. No, I never think, of, really, I mm -hmm. never think about it. What I think about is getting into their personal space mm -hmm. and being able to operate within that space mm -hmm. and get them to do things that I'd like them to do. <laughs> Which you may not even know of in advance. Correct. Right. I know you alluded to it a little bit before, you know, just, uh, you know, how you, you'd see a woman with this amazing blonde hair and mm -hmm. just go up to her and ask her, how else would you approach people? I mean, I, I guess you also talked about developing your kind of cast of characters. You met certain people and then became more familiar with them. But how else would you get into people's homes? How else would you go about doing that? I'd go up to people. Random people and yeah. yeah. If I liked the way they looked, if you liked the way they looked, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or if they're hanging out on a porch or something, mm -hmm. and I like the, I have to like the way they look, or else forget it. So there's something that attracts me to them, uh -huh. whether it's how they're dressed, their, um, I don't know, body language, um, who's out there, I, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I take some pictures, and I usually can get a sense if I'm able to work with them or not. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned before, I'll bring back all the pictures I photograph, hand them the pictures, mm -hmm. and say, can we go inside and do some more? And 
they say no, fine. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to push it, but by and large, people are willing to open their houses to me. Mm-hmm. And then I would say things, I'm really interested in photographing when you get up in the morning. Mm-hmm. Don't change your clothes. Wear your pajamas and your hair and curlers and feed in your kids and whatever. And they were all willing to do it, so... They, no one found it to be no. strange or weird? No. Or, yeah. They were all into it. They were all into it. So you found a good cast. I found a ca- Right. And yeah. people that weren't into it, I just said fine and went on my way. There's plenty more people out in the world. Mm-hmm. So Who is it's it? a little difficult. It's more difficult now, though, mm-hmm. when you're walking around the streets. Now, I don't know what they think of me. It's like an older woman walking around with a camera. Now, everybody has a camera and takes pictures, you know, you know cell phones. Yeah. So it's a little different. But... Um, I think people are still sort of a little, they're a little um, more suspect, but they still allow me thing, to do things. And so mm-hmm. I'm still doing it. How important do you think your own openness is when you're photographing? By giving I think more it's yourself? very important. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I'm able to do what I can do. Because, because you're I'm, open? I'm open. I'm honest. I don't have any kind of hidden agendas yeah. although i have an agenda yeah um but and but people are sort of willing to sort of they trust me and they allow me to to do what i would like to do um the other about two weeks ago i would drive past this building and it had it was it had all like it has all sorts of like detritus in front of it um has old washing machines and things, just like a bunch of stuff, and flags like there's a like an American flag and some sort of like "Don't tread on me" flag, and you know uh, about five different flags. I'm uh-huh. saying, I wonder who lives in that house. And I've been driving past this place for about ten years. Finally, there was somebody sitting in the yard. Mm-hmm. So I got out of my car with mm-hmm. my camera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I walked up to the guy. And I said, you know, I've been driving past here for years, and I've been so curious about this. Who lives here? Does anybody live here? Um, could I take a few pictures? And we started chatting, and I took a bunch of pictures. And this was just two weeks ago, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'd like to come back. I'll bring you some of the pictures. He said, well, my wife works at the gas station, and she makes these, I don't know what they are, collages out of seashells and I would love to have her show them. You can photograph. I mean, I have a whole other subject. Things unfold. Yeah. They Things just happen. unfold. Yeah. If, you, if you're sort of open to it. Yeah. And so. And actually like genuinely curious. And I am. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's not garbage. It's sort of interesting life spilling out of the house. Yeah. <laughs> Onto the pavement and the and the uh and the porch and the grass and things yeah all sorts of stuff what else are you working on now i mean there's been a big past two years for you yeah. these, well uh... i just finished the book you yeah. know that so um i've been photographing i've been um actually i went back and i tried to find the people i photographed from my first book 35 years ago uh-huh and, you know, some of the people, obviously, I know, they're my family and friends, but there was a, a good portion of them that were living in this area, in the Springfield, Massachusetts area where I live. And I hunted them down. Mm-hmm. I remembered some names. I remembered where they lived. Nobody lived there anymore. But 
um, through Facebook, I found people and found other people. So I found about maybe 15 or so folks mm -hmm. and I've been re-photographing them. Hmm. So in a similar way, in a, in similar, a similar way. Yeah. Yeah. Your, um, your, your way. My, my way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I go into their homes and I say, can I take some pictures? And, um, what's really interesting is one woman that was on the cover of the book, her daughter looks just like her daughter now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she sort of looks like herself, but you know, obviously 30 years older. Yeah. But I still think of them as that age and those they live they're alive to me in that sort of form. Because you've been looking at the pictures. Because I've been you, and that's uh, what I know. Yeah. That's so it's been interesting. Yeah. So I don't know if that's going to take me anywhere, but it gives me something to point my camera at. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes I'll just point my camera at things and You'll trip over a project. You'll trip over something. All of a sudden, you'll have a, a moment saying, hmm, this looks interesting. Maybe I should try this or try that. Well, thanks so much for having me here. I mean, oh. it's a, I mean, it's an honor and it's a pleasure to talk with you. No, it's a pleasure talking with you, too. I you love such your... a beautiful, mellifluous <laughs> voice. Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> That was my conversation with Mary Fry that we recorded in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhem. Music in this episode by Adam Feingold. To see more of Mary Fry's work, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast and visit us at our website, www.magichourpodcast.org. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.